Paul makes that statement several times in the the epistles, walk worthy of the Lord, and we're going to look at one of them this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Who we are affects how we live. Who we are affects how we live. In fact, your parents probably said something like this to you when you were a child. They said something like, act your age, right? The point is that because age brings maturity, your age demands that you act a certain way. In other words, because of how old you are, you're not to be acting like someone who is younger. I occasionally will say to one of my children, don't act like a two-year-old. The implication of that is that that child is a certain age and he or she ought to act like the mature person person that their age brings. This is Paul's point in verses 1 through 6. Act the way Christians ought to act. So, you are a Christian, act that way. That's what he's saying here in verses 1 through 6. He begins this section with the word therefore, which points us back to the first three chapters. Now, the first three chapters were primarily doctrinal in nature. Paul had only given one imperative, one command in the entire entire first three chapters, and that was a command for them to remember how they formerly were. So it's not really like a a, a do type of command. It's really just, you know, remember how it used to be, how you used to be in order to recognize your position in Christ. That that's the point of verses one or chapters one through three. So only one imperative in the first three chapters. In the last three chapters there are forty commands, forty imperatives. And in addition to those, he also uses some other ways to uh implore people to live, like he's going to do here. You're going to see him use this phrase, I implore you, this which acts as a command as well. So more than forty, I would say command-like statements that Paul makes to the believers because of what they should have learned in chapters 1 through 3. And Paul does this often in his letters. He moves from doctrine to practice. For example, in Romans, chapters 1 through 11 tells a person what they formerly were and what God has made them to be. Chapters 1 through 11, then chapters 12 through 16 he fills it up with commands. Because of chapters 1 through 11, this is how you ought to live. You ought to offer your body as a living sacrifice, right? 12.1, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. You, you, you see Paul in his letters move from doctrine to practice. Now why is he doing this? Is he looking for uh, outward conformity? Is he just trying to get people to, to be good on the outside? And the, the way that he sets up his letters, I think, proves that that's not what he's looking for. But rather, he wants all of these commands to be driven by, motivated by, what we have seen in the doctrine. Okay, So doctrine is not unimportant. It's, it's very valuable. It's not very valuable on its own, right? If it doesn't lead us to do anything, it's, it's of no value. But it if it leads us to be changed, if it leads us to obey, then it has great value. In fact, 
practice is of no value if it has no doctrine that motivates it. Okay? Otherwise, what we end up with is outward conformity. Perhaps you know someone like this who on the outside is just all buttoned up. Right? They, they just have everything going for them on the outside. They're, they're upright citizens. They may even go to church. But inside, they're very corrupt. And see, a person like a Judas can go throughout life outwardly conforming, do this, do that, I'm doing this and doing that, but then being inwardly corrupt. And here's what Paul is trying to do in all of his letters. Move from a right understanding of who you are in Christ, and then once you understand that, that should lead to action. And that's what he's going to do here. We're moving now to this section of the letter where he's going to do that. That we should understand who we are in Christ, which should lead us to action. That we should act the way a Christian ought to act. Because we are Christians, we should be properly motivated to serve God. Our natural response to what we have seen so far in chapters 1-3 through should be because of what God has done for me, because of how God has placed me within the body of Christ, His church, what can I do to walk worthy of that calling? That should be the question that we naturally ask. And Paul's going to answer that question here in verses 1-6. through uh, Actually, in the entire... Uh, second part of the letter, but we're going to examine verses 1-6 through this morning. Let me read our passage for us. This is the Word of God. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Because of who we are, Christians must properly live according to God's purpose for them. We must properly live according to God's purpose for us because of who we are. In verses 1-3, through Paul gives the command, and that is to live a worthy life that maintains unity. That's what we're going to see in verses 1-3. through Live a worthy life that maintains unity. Then in verses 4-6, through we'll see why we ought to do that. He's going to give us the motivation. So he's going to go back and, and dip into the resources of what we've seen in chapters 1-3. through Okay, so... First, the command. Live a worthy life that maintains unity. Live a worthy life that maintains unity. Notice the command there in verse 1, or at least it comes across as a force, as the same force as a command. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in, the manner, in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Okay, so very simply, Paul is saying, walk worthy of your calling. This is what we just sang about. Walk worthy of the Lord. Walk worthy of, of the great privilege that we have in Christ. Paul calls himself in verse 1 the prisoner of the Lord. He had done this in chapter 3 and verse 1 as well. And he's saying, you know, you ought to be like me. And 
Treat yourself as a prisoner of Christ as well. See yourself as a prisoner of Christ. That it is Christ who owns you because He has made you. The triune God has made you and Christ has bought you with His blood and so He doubly owns you and therefore see yourself as a prisoner. That is, your whole life belongs to Him. And He's speaking not to just individual believers. Notice, uh, we, we can't see this very well in our translation, but I'll, I'll show you. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. And we could insert the word all. You all. That's a plural you. So it's referring to all the believers there in the church at Ephesus. Of course, this letter is going to be passed around as well. So um, this also applies to us. But the point is that we shouldn't think of ourselves as single, individual, isolated units, individual Christians, but rather Christians who are part of something larger and that you all need to walk worthy of your calling. We all need to walk worthy of our calling. That's Paul's point. That's the main command of this paragraph here in verses 1-6. through Now, what does he mean when he says walk worthy of our calling? How do we do? We have to, you know, keep in step. You know, do a certain uh, walk down the 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 road or something. No, he's talking about conducting our lives. Usually, when the scripture writers use the word walk, they're referring to how we live our lives. So he's saying this: conduct your lives, your Christian lives, in such a way that is keeping with how you have been called and how has God called us. Well. Let's think back to chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 1, we have been called to exist for God's glory. We don't exist for ourselves. Okay, So if we're going to walk worthy of our calling, we need to understand that we have been called to exist for God's glory. Chapter 2, we've seen that we've been called to individual salvation and to unity within a body. That we are united with both Jews and Gentiles within the body of Christ. Okay, so this is part of our calling. Chapter 3, we saw that our calling meant that we are a part of a local church that displays God's wisdom to the angels and to the demons. And then at the end of chapter 3, we saw that our calling has to do with our understanding of the depths of His love. Recognizing how great God really loves us. Okay, so in summary, summary, if we want to think about our calling, chapters 1-3, through three, We need to think about it in terms of the great privilege that we have because we are in Christ. And because of this great privilege, we have a great responsibility. You know, perhaps your parents talk to you the way that my parents would. You know, act like an Elwert. Okay? You are an Elwert, act like one. There's something that my parents saw as special as having that name, and because you have that name, you need to act in a certain way. Here's what Paul's saying. Because you are a Christian, act like one. Okay? Live worthy of what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a part of the family. And so Paul very simply says, live a life worthy of the calling. I think we could all agree with, with that. Well, how do we do that? How do we live a worthy life? The look of a worthy life is found in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Now notice he doesn't give us a command here in verse 2. He doesn't say, be humble, be gentle, be patient. He doesn't say that, does he? 
Instead, he says, as you're walking worthy, this is how you are to walk worthy. You walk worthy gently and humbly. You walk worthy patiently. That's the idea of, of what he's saying here. So, although he doesn't come out and say, be humble, be gentle, be patient, these actually come across as the force of the command because they actually take the command, the force of the command that they are supporting. And these are all... Um, in uh, they are all subordinate commands. So, so you have the main command, I implore you to walk worthy of the calling, and then these subordinate ones. And here's how you do it. With gentleness, with humbleness, with patience. Okay? Um, so we could say it this way. Walk worthy by being humble and gentle. By, walk worthy by being patient. In other words, they show us how we should walk a worthy life. You may say, well, I want to walk a worthy life because I recognize that I am a Christian and the great graces that I've received, chapters 1 through 3, and now I want to walk worthy of that calling. So how do I do that? Paul says, here's how you do it. You do it gently and humbly and you do it patiently. So let's look at how we do that, the mode of our worthy walk. First, humbly and gently. And these two are connected. They are put together in one prepositional phrase. Let me show you that in verse 2. Notice the two words with. With all, and we could say this is number one, with all humility and gentleness, and then number two, with patience. So humbleness and gentleness are connected. And if our focus is on our own needs, then we're not going to see this. Paul's saying, what I want you to see is you need to be humble and gentle. That you can't move towards Christian isolationism where you're you're totally shutting out all other Christians. Humility and gentleness are only required within the context of living among other people. Humility and gentleness are only necessary within the context of living with other people. Have you ever thought about that? You don't have to be humble around yourself, right? You don't have to be gentle to yourself. You do it to other people. And so Paul's point is the same thing is true about the next command, which is to be patient, that it implies that we are supposed to be living among other believers. That means that we have a responsibility to to subordinate ourselves to the needs of other people just like our Savior did in Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. This mind of humility who although he was equal with God, did not see equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay? He, he put aside those things and humbly came and, uh, and gave himself to the needs of other people. He was humble and gentle. And we are called, if we're going to be living worthy of our calling, we must do it with gentleness and humility. Then secondly, the extent of our work, worthy walk is seen in the next phrase, with patience. And we could actually include the rest of the verse in this next point. With patience, how do we show patience? Well, we show tolerance for one another in love. So these are not two separate things, but rather connected again. The extent of our worthy walk is with patience. When we interact with people, we need patience, don't we? Because we are, we are often the servants of of their responses to situation. Let me give you an example. You 
you see how long you had to wait for me to get that example out? That requires patience, doesn't it? Okay, but what does patience look like? The, the, the phrase gives us the answer. What does it look like to be patient, to walk worthy of the, the Lord, walk worthy of our calling patiently? Well, the last phrase tells us how to do that. Showing tolerance for one another in love. Why is it so important that we need patience within the body of Christ? Well, if we think about it from a church perspective, I am not like you, and neither is anyone else in this room. We are all different. And so you and I need to be patient with one another. I mean, let's think about the opposite of patience. Perhaps this will clarify it for us. What kind of words would you use to describe impatient people? Okay, I'm not looking for names. I'm looking for words. So like controlling, manip- manipulative, angry, frustrated, quick-tempered, independent. Those, that's, what indep- that's what impatient people are like. They have to have it their way. They don't want to work with other people. And so within the church of God, we must look at the text again at the end of verse 2. Tolerate one another in love. Because we are all different and we are all changing. We are all being refined, aren't we? And how fast does that refining process go? Overnight? As soon as we want it to? As soon as everybody else wants me to change? No. It takes time. And it requires corporate patience okay, for each one of us to be growing in our own individual Christian lives. And for us to be growing as a whole, it requires that we are patient with one another. How much different would the relationships in this church look if all of them were marked by showing tolerance for one another? Or could I say it this way? Mutual forbearance. How much different would the relationships in this church look if we all were marked by mutual forbearance, including myself? How much different would we look if we had realistic expectations for one another and for their growth process? Sure, we all have an idea of where we want to see people, where we want them to be, how committed we want to see them. And maybe, you know, for... for for you who call yourselves, you know, extremely spiritually look down on people if people were only committed to holiness as much as I am. But what would happen if we had realistic expectations for the young Christians or the struggling Christians or the Christians who were maybe on the same plane as us or, or whatever? Think about your own life. How long did it take for you to become as godly as you are now? And by the way, we're all not not where we ought to be with regard to our godliness. We still need a lot of work, don't we? So how long did it take you to get to where you are now? So why would you expect that change would automatically happen or immediately happen in everyone else's life? And so what what I'm saying to you is that if we're going to walk worthy of our calling, we need to recognize the nature of change. And that's going to require patience on our part. We need to be patient with people even if they're not where we want them to be. We need to be patient when they treat us differently than we want to be treated. We need to show tolerance to one another in love. And when we do this, we will be, verse 3, 
We will be being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let me try to show you the structure of, of Paul's argument here. His, his statement. He's saying, because of who we are, Christians, we ought to walk worthy of our calling. And that means being gentle, humble, and patience, patient, showing tolerance for one another in love. And when we do this, we will maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, a church that is walking worthily of our calling or of its calling maintains unity. Verse 3. A church that is walking worthily maintains unity. Notice whose unity this is in verse 3. The unity of whom? The unity of whom? See it in your text there? The unity of the Spirit. Okay, so we can say, who does this unity come from? Who's responsible for this unity? And the answer is the Spirit. And so here's what Paul is not saying. You need to create unity. You need to pursue unity. He's not saying that. That's not our responsibility. But rather, the unity that the Spirit automatically puts in place among believers, you need to maintain it. You show me a church that is full of disunity, discord, disharmony, impatience, pride, intolerance for one another, and I'll show you a church that's not walking worthy of their calling or possibly a church that hasn't been called. Our job as a congregation of baptized believers is to preserve or maintain the unity that the Holy Spirit has already established in this place. The Holy Spirit has established unity because of our common bond in Jesus Christ. And our job is to maintain that, not to sow discord. Notice at the end of the verse, in the bond of peace. This is the Spirit again who causes this peace to come among the true people of God. Turn back to chapter 2 with me. Chapter 2, verse 14, and tell me whose peace this is. The peace that comes through the church, that is the church's peace, whose peace is it? Verse 14, for He Himself is our peace. Well, let's look back up to verse 13 to see who that is. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He, Christ Himself, is our peace. The Spirit causes there to be peace among the true people of God because of the unity that He has, he has created among us, which is Christ's peace. So what does that say to us if our church is marked by infighting? If the Holy Spirit is the one who brings unity and, the, and, and Jesus Christ is the one who, whose peace it is to have the church exist as it does, what does it say when our church is marked by infighting? And I would say that at the very least it shows us that we're not a living, we're not living according to how Christ has designed us to live. That we're not work, walking worthy of our calling. And the reason that unity and peace are so important is because a peaceful, unified body cultivates spiritual growth. 
A peaceful, unified body cultivates spiritual growth. Now look back to chapter 2 again, verse 12. Remember, Paul says, that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in Himself He might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And then look at verse 21. I said that a a peaceful, unified body cultivates spiritual growth. When all that is taking place, when God is bringing together both Jew and Gentile, here's what happens in verse 21. In whom the whole body, that is in Christ, the whole body being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. The means to our individual and corporate spiritual growth is one of the primary ways is through the the unity, the peace within the body of Christ. And so that's why Paul is saying that this is so vital that we maintain what Christ, what the Holy Spirit has already set up. Because the opposite of that, if we are um, given to infighting, discord, disharmony, independence, is not conducive to spiritual growth. It would be like taking a tarp and putting it over our garden and expecting there to be growth. That's the nature of discord within the body of Christ. So maintaining unity cultivates spiritual growth. And I would say, conversely, creating disunity or disharmony stifles spiritual growth. Creating disunity stifles spiritual growth. So, There's Paul's first command in this practical section. Again, there's going to be many more. There's going to be dozens more of commands that Paul's going to give us in chapters 4-6. through But here's his first one. Walk worthy of your calling. If you're a Christian, live like a Christian. And the way that you do that within the context of the local church is you maintain the unity that the Holy Spirit and Christ have already set up. If you don't think that's important, then Paul is going to give you some reasons to do that in verses 4 through 6. And that's what we see here in verses 4 through 6. There is a motivation for maintaining this unity, for walking worthy. And the motivation is the unifying realities of the faith. The unifying realities of the faith. Let me read this section here for us again. Verse 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I hope you noticed that there were a couple words that were repeated multiple times which gives us an indication into what the point of this section is. I think the word that's repeated the most is the word one, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Okay, so we have this unity. The reason that we ought to have unity within our church and maintain that unity is because of these unifying realities within our faith. Okay, we're going to go through these. And the point that Paul is making is that it would be foolish for us 
to go against the unifying nature of the body of Christ. It would be foolish to create discord within the church because this unifying nature is as indestructible as the unifying realities that we're going to look at here. You see these unifying realities that God is one? Is there anything that can destruct or destroy the unifying nature of the Godhead? And the answer is no. And that's the point. Within the local church, we cannot be creating discord because, in a sense, it is indestructible. When we do this, we're actually showing ourselves to be against the things of God, if not, at worst, um, not a part of God's family at all. So, we could understand verses 4-6 through six this way. Just as all believers are united in the Spirit, so is the body of Christ. Just as, look at verse 4, just as we are called in one hope, so is the body of Christ. Just as we all have one Lord, verse 5, so does the body of Christ. Just as we all have one faith, one baptism, and one God, so does the body of Christ. Okay, so if we have unity through the same triune God, through the same doctrine, the same baptism of the Spirit, then we must maintain that unity. Verse 4, we see the Spirit's work is in bringing unity. How can there be one body of Christ? Look at verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit. How can there be one body of Christ? except through the Holy Spirit's work. And you understand this if you've been on a mission trip before, that you can worship with believers who are of the same mind, and although they speak a different language and have a different culture, you have that sense of peace. You have that sense of unification with them. That's the Spirit's job. So you don't have to force that relationship, do you? It comes automatically because of our relationship with the Spirit because of our relationship with Christ. We don't have multiple spirits of God that are around. You know, we have the the Spirit of God in this place and then a different Spirit of God in this place and He's creating unity in those places, but, you know, when they come together, it doesn't work. No, it's one Spirit. He's in charge of the unification of all the churches. That is, in each little outpost of the church, The Spirit's in charge of it so that when they come together, there is unity. There is peace. Verse 5, we see the Son's work of ministering unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We all have one Lord, don't we? We don't have multiple Lords that we're serving. And so it doesn't make sense for us to quarrel. It doesn't make sense for us to be in disharmony. This is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 1, right? And some of you are saying, I am of Paul, and some of, some of you other ones are saying, I am of Paulus, and I am of the Lord. It doesn't make you any better than anyone else. You're all of the same Lord. We have one Lord. You don't need to take sides. And so there shouldn't be, there shouldn't be any quarrels that attribute to disharmony or disunity. Look at verse 5 again. One Lord, one faith. Okay, again, we, have, we don't have multiple faiths that we believe in. Within the true body of Jesus Christ, there is only one faith. There's one body of doctrine that we are to believe. It's the same body of doctrine that all church age, age believers believe, that they have believed since the Pentecost time of Pentecost and 
that they will believe all the way until the time of the rapture. There's one body of doctrine. So we have one Lord, one faith, and then notice verse 5, one baptism. Now, you probably recognize that there are two types of baptism. One is water baptism. That is baptism by immersion. It's our identification with Jesus Christ that we are following Him. And this is this is granting us entrance into the local church. The second type of baptism actually precedes water baptism and it's called spirit baptism. Okay, so which one is Paul talking about? Is he talking about water baptism or spirit baptism? Well, spirit baptism is this judicial act, act whereby the Spirit of God unites us with the universal body of Christ. This is automatic when we come to Christ. The Spirit unites us with the body of Christ. Okay, The outward expression of that is when we come to a local church and we seek to join in membership with that church, and before doing that, the church requires us to be water baptized. Okay, So, spirit baptism actually precedes water baptism. And if you look at the context... It's not that we all have one means of entering the local church, water baptism, but rather, as many of you said, it's actually referring to spirit baptism. That's my understanding of this. He's not talking about, again, the the Ephesians only. It's not that just the Ephesians who have one Lord and one faith, but it's all the churches of all time have one faith and one baptism. So that's referring to the spirit baptism. And... um, This spirit baptism gets us access into the universal body of Christ. Then notice verse 6, the Father's work of governing unity. Verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We have one God. We have one Father who is over all. There's one God who is in control of this all. And yet there is diversity among His children, isn't there? I mean, as... As a parent, think about the diversity of your own kids. They're not all the same, are they? They're not just cookie cutters of uh, of you or your spouse, but they're all different. I mean, think about Jacob and Esau, how different they were even though they had the same parents. Or think about Joseph and his 11 brothers and how different they were and yet they had the same parents. At least they had the same father. And yet, each set of siblings has the same father So while they're diverse within their families, they still have the same Father. And here's the point. Within the body of Christ, we as a body may be different from a body in Africa or Australia or wherever it is, but ultimately we have the same Father and we're working towards the same goal. So in that way, we're very much alike. So while we're diverse, Diverse, we are all united under one Father who is over all. Even though, as if we want to think about all the Christians who now exist, okay, that we would call that group the Universal Church. We can't meet together as a Universal Church, can we? It would be impossible. But here's the point: as the body of Christ, we have an eternal, unbreakable bond of unity with all Christians who have been established and who have been joined into this universal body by the Spirit. And because this is the case, 
There should be no divisions within our local expression of that. Because if we're going to break this bond, it's basically like saying that the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ that bought our unity and the peace that the Holy Spirit brings and the access that we have to God doesn't matter to us. Let me leave you with four points of application from our text. The main point is walk worthy of your calling by maintaining unity within the church. And uh, the reason that we do this is because of the unifying realities of the faith. There are many things that unify us together. Now, the first is a worthy walk is a commitment to Christian unity. When we pursue a worthy walk, we are committing ourselves to Christian unity. Now, Paul has been talking about, verses 4-6, through six, a universal scope, hasn't he? One God over all. One faith, one Lord, one baptism, so on. And so what, is that, what exactly does that look like in Royal Oak? Does this mean that we need to join a denomination and somehow unify ourselves with them? Does this mean we need to seek relationships with every single member in the known world? No. Remember, Paul is writing to whom specifically? The Ephesian believers. So he's talking about a church in one place, not to every church, although it does apply to every church. His primary recipients are the Ephesian churches. And so he expects the Ephesian church to be able to fulfill what he's telling them to fulfill. To fulfill their responsibility within the context of the people they know. And this makes sense, right? We can't fulfill our responsibility to pray for one another, right? We have a responsibility to pray for one another. How, how, how do we pray for every single Christian in the entire world? We don't know them by name. How can we pray for them? How do we even know what they're going through? We don't. And so the practical outworking of a proper understanding of Christ's church globally is that it will lead us to a properly functioning local church. That is, just like baptism is an expression, local baptism in a single place is an expression of our spirit baptism into the universal body, so is our local church an expression of the universal body. We are an expression of the universal church. We could think of ourselves as an outpost. And so our goal is to seek to maintain unity within our gathering of believers. We don't pursue unity outside of our church necessarily. Remember, who's doing the unity? Who's bringing churches, believers, united together? Who's doing that? It's the Spirit. So we don't seek that. We seek to maintain what He's already put in place. And we do this by gathering together with believers in such a way that it reflects what should be happening in the universal church. What will this say to the world when a Bible-believing local church is in disharmony? What does that say about Christ's universal church, Christ's universal body? What does it say to them about that. Do you see how we're a representation of the larger, broader body of Christ? 
So Paul's point is very practical. If you can't live in harmony with believers now within the context in which God has placed you, the context of this local church, then what makes you think you will be able to live in harmony with all believers for eternity in heaven, for example? Okay, so we are called to maintain the harmony that's already put in place by the Holy Spirit within this church. Number two, unity, preserving unity is an every member ministry. Preserving unity is an every member ministry. That is, we have a responsibility, each one of us does. Remember to whom Paul is writing. He's not writing to the pastor or the pastors at the church at Ephesus, is he? He's writing to the congregation as a whole. Now, that doesn't exclude the pastor. That includes him because he's a part of the church as well. But practically, that means that you individually have a responsibility to maintain the unity of the Spirit. You have a responsibility to walk worthy of your calling. And so I'll ask you, what are you doing to maintain that unity within the expression of Christ's body in Royal Oak called Ambassador Baptist Church? What are you doing to maintain the unity? Perhaps a better way to think about it is by looking at the opposite. How are you contributing, how are you contributing to the disharmony within this local body? How are you contributing to the disunity, the lack of peace? What kind of things do we do to promote disharmony? We saw them in verses 2 and 3. We are not gentle or humble or patient or tolerant with one another. When we're doing those things, we're not walking worthy of our calling and we're not maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Instead, we're being controlling, manipulative, independent. We need to act as the Christians that we are. Perhaps our disharmony could show up also in loving our own sin or seeking to follow the latest fad of churches or seeking to exalt one person over another in a wrong way. You know, that causes division. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. That sort of idea. Preserving unity is an every member ministry. Number three, because it is a, an every member ministry, Our responsibility is to commit ourselves to maintaining unity in this body. Okay? Let me put it a different way. Let me put it in the second person. Your responsibility is to maintain unity within this body. You may find it easier to bounce around from church to church, maybe you know, join a church for a few years and then bounce around to a different church and join that one for a little while and so on. We live in a culture that allows and encourages the transferring of membership even within a specific area. Is that helpful for the individual unity within Christ's body? Or are we giving up on our responsibility to be patient with one another? Usually we leave churches. Why? Because we are impatient with what's going on. Now, obviously, I'm assuming that the church that we're leaving is one that's um, either not following God or it was because we weren't following God or something like that. But what would happen if we were the only church within a 60-mile radius? What, what if a person in our church who had been a member of our church for several years came to disagree with us on something of very minor significance? And what if as they left, they believed that we really were Christians, 
but we just disagreed with them on that one area, and we believed that they were Christians, what would they do if there's no church within 60 miles of here? Where would they go? How would they maintain the unity that the Spirit has put in place? I mean, they're going to have to completely move, aren't they? See, as a church, we may try to preserve unity. You know, As individuals, we may try to preserve unity by just getting out of the way. I'll just go somewhere else. As a church, we may try to preserve unity by getting rid of the dead weight. You know, the person who's disgruntled, well, we don't want people seeing that, so let's just move them on. How would that sort of mentality work within our own families or maybe a better example is within our own bodies? When we had some part of the body that was contributing to our disharmony as a body, how effective would we be as a person if we were just to get rid of that part of the body? You know, like we have a broken finger. It's it's causing disharmony to my whole body. So instead of seeking to bring it back, restore it to health, we just cut it off. And I'm afraid we do that too often within our transferring of churches within a given area because we don't seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We seek to be happy with ourselves. We don't want to be patient. We don't want to wait long term for change to happen. And so we move on. And so you might be thinking, well, what's the point of church discipline then? Right? Isn't there, doesn't Paul call us to remove that person from among us? Doesn't Jesus say in Matthew 18, you know, if they sin, they take it before uh, that person, then two or three, then before the church, and then remove them from your midst? Well, what about that? I mean, if our ultimate goal is unity, then how are we supposed to obey the command of church discipline? And I would suggest to you that, first of all, our goal is not unity. That's not our goal. Our goal is purity. You see, if unity is our ultimate goal, then we will be happily compromising the truth of Scripture so that we can accommodate people. Can you imagine what kind of people we would allow to join into membership of our church if our main goal was unity? Right? Believer, unbeliever alike, come on in. But that's not what the Scriptures call us to. And so our main goal is not unity. The Spirit's goal is unity. He's seeking to preserve unity Our goal is to seek to walk worthy of that calling, to maintain purity, to pursue purity within our church. And so if that means someone comes in who's a false teacher or a false professor, that is, their lives don't match up with what they're saying, then church discipline is completely appropriate and we have pursued what we ought to pursue, purity. Number four. Pursue peace in this body of believers. If Christ has called you to be a part of this body, then pursue it in this body of believers. And the way that you pursue peace is by living with one another in humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another and love. Don't cause strife among believers. Be a peacemaker. When you see strife start to rise within the church, then you can seek to be a peacemaker. Because you want to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
If God has done all these things for us, chapters 1-3, through if we exist for His glory, if He saved us individually, to be a part of His church, to be joined in unity, then what can I do to walk worthy of that calling? And the very first thing that Paul says is to maintain the unity that the Spirit has already set up by showing tolerance for people who are different from you, who will often fail you, And yet this is the way that real spiritual growth happens. It's the way that the whole body builds up together as we're patient with one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for uh, Your grace and for Your patience with us. Thankful that You did not condemn us at the first sight of our sin. If You would count a record of our sins, O Lord, who could stand? So we're thankful that You're merciful and gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. May we be the same with the believers here in this church. It's easy for us to express our love for all believers in the entire world, but we don't know those people. And if we knew a lot of them, we would have a hard time loving them. The real test of our faith, Father, is to show genuine love to people that we do know to Christians with whom we have covenanted together to maintain this unity. And although it's difficult and hard at times for us to do this because we can be independent at times, we can be manipulative, scheming in our ways, we expect everybody to to be like us when if we're honest with ourselves, we were given a lot of time for change. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're not completely pure. We have a long way to go. So help us to be patient with one another. We want to exalt the name of Jesus Christ, His reputation in this area and in this place. We want people to see what a great work You are doing among Your people in this place. Thankful for those who have committed themselves to preserving this unity. And we pray that you would um, honor them and that you would seek to um, help them as they continue to be models for us all. We pray that each of us could grow in our commitment to the expression of the universal body in this place. Thankful for our Savior and for Him buying this church with His own blood. And we pray that we would walk worthy of our calling. In Jesus' name, amen.